In my last episode, we talked all about the social and cultural anthropology surrounding Tudor England. Now, we're going to talk all about the archaeology surrounding Tudor England. Archaeology can tell us a lot about life, culture, and even specific people who lived during Tudor England. We're going to look at two specific Tudor-related archaeology cases to see what it can tell us about Tudor life, and we'll also assess some of the controversies surrounding archaeology today. I'm Sarah. I'm Emily. I'm Katrina. And this is The Anthrophiles. Okay, so you guys remember my last episode about Tudor England? I do. How could I forget? (laughs) With the the stanky leg. The guy with the stanky leg. leg. And the guy who like farted in court. (laughs) I'm so glad. I'll never forget about that. Those are your two biggest takeaways. (laughs) Um, Today, we're going to talk about the more archaeology based side of things. And I have two specific cases we're going to be looking at. One is called the Mary Rose, and then we're going to be talking about a great playwright from Tudor England. Can you guess who they are? Shakespeare? Uh-huh, Shakespeare. Yes. So hope you've brushed up on your Romeo and Juliet because I will be quizzing you on the plot Oh no! at the end of this. <laughs> no. Okay. So the Mary Rose. Also, this is just a side note to you guys. I did not plug in many questions into this, so please feel free to interrupt me at any point in time about anything at all. The Mary Rose. What was it? Any guess? I'm going to guess it was a boat. That's a pretty good guess. I didn't have one at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Emily's guess was right. The Mary Rose was a boat. It was King Henry VIII's ship. Do you remember King Henry? I do. The Eighth. Emily, come on. (laughs) Are you (laughs) kidding me? (laughs) Yes, I do. Okay, who was he? (laughs) Yeah. He was the king. You suck. He's the guy with the stinky leg. No, you don't. I really did. <laughs> okay, well, King and he, King Henry VIII's ship, it was in his navy, and the boat sank in 1545, and I think there were about 500 men on board, and a good portion of them died. I don't have the exact number. Probably should have written that down, but, like, more of them died than survived. So people began really searching for the Mary Rose in the year 1965. This is when it kind of started to pique people's interest because we knew that it had sank, like there were records of it back in the 1500s, um, but people wanted to like go and find it now. Kind of like they did with like the Titanic or like digging up Pompeii. It's like, oh, like this great disaster. We want to uncover it. So a man named Alexander McKee started the Project Solent Ships with the purpose of finding the Mary Rose. And they used sonar to locate a strange shape in the ocean. And they dove under the water (laughs) and found pieces of timber that were similar to the structures of a boat. And on May 5th, 1971, a diver found three pieces of port frames indicating they had indeed found a ship. So they were they were getting closer. If this wasn't the Mary Rose, it was at least like a sunken ship that they had discovered. So when they had found this boat and they were like thinking that like, okay, this is the Mary Rose, Prince Charles of England himself, that's Harry and William's dad, right? I don't, you could lie to me and I would okay. believe you. I think that's Harry and William's dad. Yes. Um, thank you, Katrina. Was deemed the president of the Mary Rose Trust in 1979 and real serious excavations began. So all of England was like on board with this. They were hyped up for it. By October 11th, 1983, the Mary Rose was fully raised out of the ocean in a mostly whole piece, what they could get. 
obviously you couldn't just lift the whole boat out. So what's interesting about the excavation of the Mary Rose in particular is that it involved a lot of underwater archaeology, which I feel like we haven't really learned that much about, and I don't remember learning about that in classes too much. No, me either. I wouldn't even know like where to start with that. I know. Yeah, definitely like an uncharted sort of topic for us. Yes. Because it's like, how do you keep track of everything in like... Underwater. And then yeah. like erosion's got to be so different too, like all that kind of stuff. So it was one of the first underwater sites in England to be archaeologically excavated by a team of professionals. And the excavation itself taught the scientific community a lot about how marine sites degrade over time and how to preserve objects and structure during an excavation. So the excavation pioneered the use of this thing called terum. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's T-E-R-R-A-M. And it's a protective material to cover and preserve the wreck for future de- generations. So based on the research I did, I started to do some tarum research and went to some like, science-y websites that mm-hmm. went a little over my head. But it seems like a type of fabric or tarp material that you put over underwater objects to prevent erosion. So in this case, they were using it for archaeology purposes. But you could also use it for like jetties or docks and stuff like that. So like the structure lasts longer than it would if you didn't have it. Many artifacts were discovered on the Mary Rose. Here are some of them. I have a game for you guys to play. Oh, yeah. Are you ready? Okay, so I'm going to show you a picture Mm -hmm. of an object discovered from the Mary Rose. You're going to have to describe it for the audience because this is not a visual medium. So you are got to give a little audio description of it. And then I want you to guess what it is and what its, like, purpose was on the on board the ship. Okay? (laughs) I think you're going to, like, I only have a few. We're going to start out nice and easy, okay? Okay. Sorry. Bam. And we can do this together. We can describe it. Yeah, or you can compete against each other. I don't think we should Okay. It looks like a wooden mug. And it has a lid. Mm -hmm. I would say some sort of holder of beverage. Maybe a water pitcher. Okay. Except no water. It was an ale pitcher, perhaps. Okay. So you're describing it as... A wooden mug with a lid, and you think it's an ale Yeah, it looks like a mini barrel with a handle that has a lid. Okay. Katrina, can you confirm that? Can confirm. Okay, perfect. I didn't want to start too crazy with you guys. We went with a nice, easy first introductory object. So this is called a tankard. There were 27 of these found on the Mary Rose, and it kind of looks like a mud. (laughs) No, a mug with a lid attached to the handle, and they were made of oak, poplar, and pine. And tankards can hold about a pint of link of liquid. And the tankards, and just to clarify, it is a mug. It is a cup for drinking <laughs> out of. Um, and the tankards that lack official marking suggest they were personal property. So if it was property of the boat, it would say, like, the Mary Rose on it. But they found a lot that did not have that. So they're like, oh, like, that was someone's, like, personal, like, little mug that they brought on the boat with them that's so funny that it would say like the mary rose on it like if you got it from a gift shop <laughs> yeah like, that's so true <laughs> <laughs> yeah why um, did it have a lid do you know i don't i the website didn't say that this is all from the mary rose oh, okay. website itself so this is like top of I just, the line I, information I hate mugs with lids, so i'm yeah. just wondering if you knew listen i don't have an answer maybe because they were on a boat so it was oh, like so you don't want spill. your liquid to spill out <laughs> i was gonna say that it's like a really? travel mug yes it true. is like a travel mug oh my gosh except you were not putting coffee in this a tankard would be used to collect a daily ration of a gallon of light beer over the course of the day so it held a pint and you were rationed a gallon of beer a day jeez i know right like no wonder the ship it's like sank people walking know. around with their like 
their water jugs strapped to their backpack. Yes. That's so funny people do that. Okay. Anyway. So that was the tankard. Are you ready for the next object? Yeah. Okay, I'll be quiet while I turn it around. This one's a little bit harder. Describe it, and then what do you think it is? Um, it looks like broken pieces of wood with cutouts in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. It's disassembled right now. I can see that. I'm trying to like think of a good guess, even if it's wrong. Look at the cutouts. I feel like that. That's like. I mean, the, the cutouts hint. remind me of like an instrument. Mm-hmm. It's like mustache shaped. <laughs> it is. It's like a mustache shaped. And then cutout. one is longer. Lots of separate pieces of wood. Yes. Okay, tell us what it is. Okay. <laughs> this is a fiddle. A fiddle? Yeah. So we were kind of right. The mustache shaped is like the little like F-holes on different types of things, like a cello or a violin. Yeah, exactly. So this is the precursor to the violin. Ooh. It's made of lime wood, and it would not have been played like a modern violin. Like, how do you play a modern violin? Can, Emily, can you With show like, us? <laughs> <laughs> um, no. But... They use a bow. Yeah. So there's no bow. No, so not quite like that. It's more like the positioning is a little bit different. So a modern violin, like you would hold it up and like you would play the bow. But with this one, it would have been pressed against your chest with the neck facing downward. So you'd kind of like hold it upside down and you'd play the bow that way. Just like. That's so interesting. Isn't it? Like, I don't know why, but that's how you would play the fiddle. All right. Ready for the next object? We got two more. This one's going to get, it's getting, it's getting trickier now. Okay, guys? Okay, I'm excited. All right. I think Katrina and I are going to nail it. Are you? I don't know. Well, <laughs> Katrina, would you like to describe this one? It looks like a ball on some sort of rope. Yeah, like a metal ball. Does it, is it metal? It looks like it might be, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't. Think Are those like be... holes in it? It almost reminds me of like one of those like incense burners that you would like wave hmm. around and like the incense would come out of the holes. Oh, like a like a Catholic church. Yeah. I don't know. I was gonna say like maybe an anchor, but I don't think the rope is long enough, and the the ball is heavy enough. It's definitely on the smaller side. I can tell you that. No guesses Just for like what it. Just like the raddest salt shaker you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> incense or salt? Okay. So this is called a pomander, P-O-M-A-N-D-E-R, a pomander. It is the only pomander found aboard the Mary Rose. And like you said, it looks like a little ball attached to a looped string and there are little holes in it. And you were pretty close with the incense guess. So people would carry pomanders around to smell better. So it was kind of like not incense, but yes, you would be carrying it around to get yourself smelling better because people reeked back then especially if you were on a ship you like there was like no bathing going Mm -hmm. on there so what people would do is they would carry dried herbs flowers or spices and they would carry it around to smell better and back then people thought that bad smells led to disease so they thought that by carrying this around it would stop the bad smells therefore stopping the diseases and you said there was only one they only found one doesn't mean there was one but yes so it's sort of like an air freshener slash cologne yes exactly but only one person was using it i guess only one person just smelled amazing real everyone else was like stanky like (laughs) wait so you said they believed Mm -hmm. that bad smells carried diseases yeah and 
Yet they refused to bathe. Right. I was going to say, didn't they also <laughs> think that, like, a good layer of scum would, like, prevent you from... From what I've, like, heard and read, yes, that, like, bathing wasn't healthy because it, like, washed... Almost like how, like, we know now that, like, you have to build up your immune system mm-hmm. by, like, getting sick with other things sometimes. They thought, like, that applied to, like, physical, like, dirt as well sometimes. I'm just seeing, like, a... There's a contradiction going on yeah. there, right? Isn't that interesting? Maybe they didn't happen. At well, the same that's time. like you know, like um, how we all know, like Ring Around the Rosie came from like the Black Death. People say, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's, I think it's true, um, but then like a pocket full of posy, ashes, ashes. Women would have like little pockets that they wore outside their dress, and you would fill it with posy, which I think is a type of flower to smell better to ward off the Black Death. It wasn't the most foolproof system, but I feel like it's fair for the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. they like, were trying their bad best. smells, bad yeah. disease. Okay, this yeah. one's my favorite. Oh, there's more. There's This is the last one, okay? Okay. It looks like a syringe. It does. It looks like a syringe with a big, long needle on it and a little plunger. Well, and my, it's metal. Yeah, it's metal, right? So what, what do they use it for? Well, they didn't have vaccines. No. No. I, I don't know, but in the interest of giving you a guess anyway mm-hmm. for amusement, I'm going to assume on this boat there was a kitchen. Mm-hmm. And in this kitchen, they made pastries, and they wanted to <laughs> fill them with things, so they would use that to fill it. <laughs> that so it filled it filled like like cream puffs with cream. Yeah, that's what the a cream puff filler. Ship. What a beautiful <laughs> thought to have, Emily, because I'm about to ruin your day. <laughs> this okay, this is no ordinary syringe. Let me tell you, because obviously we know it's not like for vaccines or anything like that. But I'm assuming Emily that the the cooking guest was slightly a joke. Yes. Okay, but we have an indication that it has to be something kind of medical, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a urethral syringe. <laughs> they both just cover their mouths and like looked away. Um, so this was found in the surgeon's cabin of the Mary Rose, and they found three syringes, but this is the only one made of pewter, with a bronze needle. So you love getting that shoved up there. Um, three syringes. Oh, sorry. These syringes were used for urethral irrigation. It would be inserted into the urethra and it would flush out the urethra with caustic fluids such as mercury. Oh. Yeah. Well, what is that word? Why? Mean? I'm going to get to that. Okay. What does caustic mean? I don't know. <laughs> I just copied that from the website. But they flushed mercury up there, I think, to try to kill whatever. Well, they did. Yeah, and among other things, right? Um, so this would be used. The reason that they did this was to burn off sores caused by diseases such as syphilis. So <laughs> An interesting solution. Yeah. And it said, although... There were traces of mercury in some of the human remains found on board. There were no traces of syphilis. So it was getting the job done. It was preventative. It was. So if you contracted syphilis, you know, at a port late night Mm -hmm. out or something like that, you would go to the surgeon. You'd say, Doc, it's not looking good. And they would pull out their pewter and bronze syringe to flush out your urethra and burn off your sores with mercury. That's got to burn. I assume it wasn't single use either, so. Probably not. <laughs> I'm so thankful for modern medicine. Me right? too. Isn't that awesome? Next time, please lie to me and tell me it's a cream puff filler. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cream puff filler. Okay. 
Moving on from the artifacts found on the Mary Rose, there were also human remains found on the Mary Rose, which makes sense because it was a, a large death site. Um, and human remains were found as well, and they tell us a lot about the origins of the people on the boat, as well as their diets and more. So they found the remains of a person that they refer to as the carpenter and also his dog. Oh. The cook, the purser, and a purser is someone who would keep count of, like, the money, basically an accountant for the boat, and the master gunner. And they could tell who all these people were based on the objects found surrounding the people. So, like, you know, the cook, maybe he had, like, a spatula <laughs> next to him, okay. right? The accountant had their money books in the same cabin as them, that kind of thing. But what really surprised archaeologists when they were studying the human remains was that the people that were on this boat who made up this crew came from a very diverse background. And they could tell that a lot of the people on the boat were from Britain, and they discovered this by looking at the isotope analysis of the bones. But they also discovered that a lot of people were from abroad, places like West Africa, for example. And this is interesting because I feel like when you talk about Tudor England specifically, but also a lot of history, it gets very, very whitewashed, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're learning about King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and all those people. And meanwhile, a lot of people like the based on the research I was doing, a lot of people like to argue like there were no people from like West Africa and Tudor England. Like there's no evidence of it. And it's like that's well, first of all, if you're like a white historian, you're approaching it from like a white perspective. Mm -hmm. But when you really look and dig around, there's evidence that like there were so many people of a lot of different diverse backgrounds around England. And this ship is kind of like a time capsule showing us that that is completely true. So they found one individual set of remains that they named Henry, and Henry is the most complete set of human remains. And few objects were found with Henry, so we don't really know what his role was on the ship. But based on the studies of Henry's skull and also like the isotope or like um, in his bones, it was determined that he was of African origin. And his isotope values indicate that he was likely born in Western or Southern Britain, and the DNA suggests his ancestors came from North Africa. And there was also a royal archer on the boat, and it's suggested based on the studies that they were doing that he was determined to be of African descent as well. And he was found on board with a longbow and a leather wrist guard, and the isotope suggested that he grew up in inland North Africa in a much hotter climate than the rest of Britain. So like I said, the archer was found with a, letter, a leather wrist guard that had a pomegranate on it. So the pomegranate was kind of like the symbol for Catherine of Aragon. Do you guys remember who she was? Katrina? <laughs> sure. Okay. She was King Henry VIII's first wife. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So she was from Spain, and her, like, symbol was the pomegranate. So he had the leather wrist guard, because, you know, in archery, when you pull the bow back, like, to protect your forearm, mm -hmm. and had the pomegranate on it, which suggests that he actually had a very high social standing in England, because not just anyone would be able to have the emblem of the queen on a, an item of their clothing. So one question that came up when they were conducting the excavations was, how did someone of African descent attain a high social class in society, in a society that we today perceive as very white? So there is a historian and professor named Onyeka Nubia um, from Britain who was featured on this website, and he explains that someone of African descent would be entering Tudor society at the societal level that their occupation demanded. So if you had a very skilled trade, you would enter into 
the social class that that trade demanded. So if you were a merchant, you were entering at the merchant level class, no matter what your, you know, your ancestry or your race was. If you were a farmer, you'd be entering at a lower level. And if you were an aristocrat or a dignitary from somewhere, you know, not England, you were entering England as an aristocrat. So there was actually potential to move up um, like social class in the same way that anyone else from Tudor England would be doing if you were like an immigrant from somewhere else coming into Tudor England. And Dr. Nubia explains that at this very specific time in England, there was, it seems like there was more discrimination based on class rather than color. So people, so like we said, you could come in at the social class that like your occupation demanded, not so much based on like what race or ethnicity you were. And of course, that's not at all to say that there wasn't discrimination going on during this time based on ethnicity or religion. It's just not as common as we might have like perceived it to be right now. And because, but because divides and prejudice were more based in class and less on color, it makes it difficult for historians to find evidence of people with African descent in England. So also I just want to mention that Dr. Nubia, who was talking all about this on the Mary Rose website, he specializes in um, like African studies and stuff like that. So like he has a, like a really strong knowledge and all this kind of stuff. And that's where I'm getting all the information from. But he was saying that it's difficult to find evidence of people of African descent in England, which then leads like more closed minded historians to believe that, well, they just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But obviously that's not true. And I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about because I feel like you see this a lot in history and anthropology. Emily, I think you're going to be even be talking almost a little bit about a similar kind of topic in your episode. But yeah, what are your comments on that? say something (laughs) (laughs) so like you're talking about like people kind of being like erased from like yeah exactly not talked about Mm -hmm. where like i do touch upon that a bit in my episode about how even people who are remembered for you know doing like something important like something like evolution like coming up with these theories it's like it just so happens that the people we remember today had like the means and the popularity to like be remembered and it wasn't that like they did it first or anything like that so i feel like that's kind of like related Mm -hmm. any thoughts or comments katrina i think it's interesting that we choose to sort of generalize history um you know i i feel like we talk about this a lot about how history is not just linear it's very complex and there's a lot of things that we don't know because we weren't there at the time Mm -hmm. so we really have to rely on what was written and what people say about it to learn about things like this and so it's interesting that the Mary Rose brought up that there were different demographics of Africans that were on this ship or even existing in Tudor England you know we don't learn about that stuff in school so it's crazy that you know it takes excavating a ship from the depths of the ocean to kind of um what's the word almost like confirm i feel like that's not confirm, quite the right okay confirm that you know this was a thing and and sort of validate it mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So exactly. That's kind of why the Mary Rose is unique because it's like this snapshot where it's like everything kind of got frozen and we can learn so much about just like more day-to-day Tudor life. And then the more I was looking around the Mary Rose website, I found actually um, a podcast interview that they had with Dr. Um, Nubia. And he, just to clarify again, is a TV historian and professor of history. And he specializes specifically in Renaissance, Black Studies and Intersectionalism at the University of Nottingham. So <laughs> so during Tudor England, the royal family is of Welsh and French descent. So that's kind of like the image that we get played to us when we're studying Tudor England. But there were also people of Scottish and Irish descent. He said that there was a group of people that called themselves the Egyptians. They weren't necessarily from Egypt, but they used that name to to like know for themselves and for the rest of society that there was a distinction um, between them and some other people in society based on ethnicity and those who labeled themselves as Egyptians didn't follow the average laws or rules of people in England at the time Hmm. and there were also people of Jewish descent which you don't hear about a lot who were fleeing Spain and Portugal from anti-semitism because Isabella and Ferdinand I think were the king and queen in Spain at the time they were like massively persecuting people who were Jewish and there was also a lot of people of African descent and these people came from all over the world so they were of African descent but they were also from Spain they were from Italy they were from France they were from the Holy Roman Empire and then there were also people that were of African descent who were second or third generation English born people so they had been there for a while and there were many different views of the people of African descent at this time. And the people of African descent came from different regions, like we said. So Dr. Nubia explains that the attitude towards people of African descent depended on where they came from and what they were doing in England. So Nubia explained two specific case studies that saw a man of African descent who was basically like a patriarch of a whole town and he was a really well-respected member of the community. He got married to someone who locally lived in the town and everyone like respected him and loved him. And then on the other hand, you have a woman of African descent. She worked for a man as like a servant and then he got like tired of her or something and he tried to sell her into slavery. But when the people of England, because at this time slavery is not like what we perceive it to be now as like, you know, like you know, the triangle trade, like that whole kind of thing. But when people found out that he was trying to do that, they said you either have to pay her, you have to give her like hours off, you have to feed her well, or you have to like essentially fire her so she can work somewhere and like be compensated fairly. So it's it's interesting to see like that like people I don't know how to like word it in the right way it's kind of a trippy tricky topic but if any of you guys want to jump in at any point it's like these people of African descent they they had they totally had lives and they were just living them in a way that is not portrayed in history books Mm -hmm. usually and I just think it's interesting to learn about I agree I mean you're like teaching me most of what I know about the topic right now Mm -hmm. um and I think that does speak to your point about how we don't learn about that in, like, history classes or, yeah. like, even see it portrayed in, like, media or anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it's not necessarily fair, but it's also not unfair either. It's this very in-between sort of topic. And, like you said, we don't cover stuff like that. The people either have to be slaves or they're not slaves. Mm-hmm. Like, they're slaves or they're free. Um, and that's just the way we think of it due to our history in America and, you know, what we're taught. But, you know, things are are very complicated, like I said yeah. before. They're not so cut and dry. 
Definitely. Yeah. So as Dr. Nubia was saying, your purpose in society as a person of African descent heavily dictated how you were perceived by society. So it's like it's the perception of like were they quote like helpful to the community is going would affect like how people perceive you which is obviously a horrible thing to do like you shouldn't dictate someone's worth based on if they're helpful to society but this was the reality at the time so for example many english people could not swim so if you were a person of african descent who could swim and a lot of them could because that like there's the coastal region there and i know it's funny because england is a coastal region but like i think the englishmen just did not <laughs> they did not mess with the water at all but if you could swim you were held in really high regard because they didn't have a lot of people in their like population that could do that so there was even a west african man named jack francis who was an excellent swimmer and he was hired as a head diver in 1547 to recover artifacts from the mary rose so, yeah, like when the boat had sank, they sent people out to like kind of do an excavation like they ended up doing in like 1979 to get like remaining goods from there so it wouldn't all go to waste. And the English Navy was really diverse because of this. They would hire people based on their abilities, not based on their ethnicity or their descent or where they came from. So there were also people of Muslim descent in um, the Navy as well as on the Mary Rose. And one of the big reasons there was actually a lot of people of Muslim descent on the Mary Rose and in the English Navy in general was because, oh, excuse me. So there was a really big population of people of African descent in the English Navy at this time. So these people, a lot of them originated, like they lived in originally in the Iberian Peninsula in around 1492. And they were just living their life uninterrupted. This is like kind of pre-colonialism. So this is before like 1492. That's like right when Columbus set out. So it's like it's just starting to get started, right? So they were holding positions of authority. They were even, there's royalty in the Iberian Peninsula. um, And they had separate Moorish states. And just, you know, Moorish is a term for someone with like a Muslim background or Muslim descent. Um, But then Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, they're the ones that sent Columbus out on the expedition. They kind of got the whole colonial thing rolling Mm -hmm. back then. They conquered the Iberian Peninsula and the people of the Iberian Peninsula were under Spanish rule. So many of them were forced to work for the Spanish Navy and forced to stop practicing, quote, their Moorish ways. So some refused to do that because they wanted to still practice their religion as they wanted to, and they didn't want to be under Spanish rule, obviously. So a lot of them fled to England to flee persecution. And these people, they lived in the Iberian Peninsula. They were familiar with the water. They had good, like, aquatic marine capabilities. So they were really experienced to work for the Navy. So England kind of, like, I don't want to say took them in because it's, like, they kind of, like, forced them to work in the navy and they were like well you could either work for our navy or we could like hand you back to ferdinand and isabella Mm -hmm. so they didn't really have much of an option but england kind of was like well you can work for us and you could still i think from what i understood practice like their their religion live how they wanted as long as they were working for the english navy little fuzzy the podcast didn't go that into depth on that section but from what i was understanding they had more freedom doing stuff in the english navy than they would have in the spanish navy which you wouldn't think exactly it's sort of like it's like ironic yeah in a way yeah. yeah but that's kind of all i have on the mary roads i realized i didn't have much of like a conclusion on that one and we kind of delved away from the mary rose but i just thought it was interesting how based on the studying of the human remains from the mary rose can open up a big gate into oh, like, there are so many people that we're not learning about in history classes or just in general 
who had these like big real lives and then you just would never know about it unless you were looking for information about them specifically yeah i feel like with you know especially pre i don't even know what year (laughs) but like 1500s it makes sense like we don't know a ton about that you know there's absolutely no photography Mm -hmm. there's even less i feel like less writing and even if there were writing on the mary rose you know i'm sure it would be washed away by so many years being underwater (laughs) um and you know even if we talk about indigenous people there's just different ways people communicated not the way that we study history now with just very straightforward writing like this is what happened or this is a diary from someone who lived during that time so we're not really getting that from this time period so it's interesting we have to look towards science and isotopes and things like that to piece together this the whole story that's so true it's it, yeah because i feel like history is definitely like it's you know categorized into like college of like arts and sciences and stuff like that and it's more of like maybe slightly like more like interpretive when you're studying history but you need to bring in the science aspect of it the archaeology to like really fully understand everything that was going on at the time yeah you're missing a huge part of it if you're just sort of studying what people have said about the time period rather than looking back and seeing like well, this is what was found, and how does that fit into the the larger story of what, you know, people said about that time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have one more topic about Shakespeare. It's a little bit lighter, a little bit shorter, a little bit more fun. I think you guys are going to like this. So we all know who Shakespeare is, right? Anyone yes. have a favorite play by him? Honestly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I reference Romeo and Juliet a lot. I feel like that's a very, like, pop culture-y sort yeah. of thing. Love Romeo and Juliet. Emily doesn't like the version with Leo from it from the 90s, but I do, so. It's just not. It's great. I don't really like it either. It's okay. It's a masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. I I like Hamlet a lot, too, but we're not going to, we're not here to talk about that. So, there's also been a lot of talk about archaeology in relation to William Shakespeare. Why, do you ask? Well, We know William Shakespeare from reading his works in school, like Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Macbeth, etc., etc. But generally, we don't talk a ton about, like, his life. Like, do you know anything about Shakespeare besides the the writing that he did? I know I don't. Um, possibly that he wasn't writing those things. (laughs) That's a whole other thing that I'm not going to get into, but I know what you're talking about. Little conspiracy theorist over here. There's, like, theories that, like, it, like Shakespeare, like, he wasn't actually one person. It was a bunch of people writing, oh. and they just used the name Shakespeare, oh, that yeah. it was someone else doing it, like, whatever. Like a group of people just, like, duped all of history? Yes, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but like, I think there was, like, an actual, there was a William Shakespeare. It's just, like, was he himself the one writing oh. all this stuff? Maybe he's like, what did I come out with this one? I know. He's like, like damn. Wow. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet went off. But he had a wife named Anne Hathaway, which I think is a fun fact. That is fun. So what we do know about his life comes from an analysis of his work so you can kind of like pull from his fiction or his sonnets to kind of get an idea of how he was feeling at the time or official records that were kept about him and his family but we don't know really like who was Shakespeare what was he feeling on a day-to-day basis don't know a lot about that but archaeology is able to provide us with tangible evidence regarding the minute details of his life so there are archaeological digs in both Shakespeare's family home and his burial place so we're going to start with his family home 
Recent excavations have revealed that the foundations of Shakespeare's home, a.k.a. what's called the New Place, which I think is so funny in like the olden days when people were like, this is my home, New Place. It's like, it you know, new <laughs> and it is a place. A place. <laughs> what would Therefore, you guys name your houses if you if you were rich in Tudor England? And my you were house. Like, my by. new house. <laughs> my new house. Very nice. So the building was lost in the 18th century, but the foundation was preserved underneath the garden. And the house was built almost 100 years before Shakespeare actually lived in it, in around 1597. And it's one of the biggest domestic homes in Stratford, and the only one with a courtyard-style open-hall house. So he was really living it up. The size and style of his house indicated that Shakespeare was part of the merchant and elite class, because it was so big the decorations for it it was like all right a rich person lived here obviously so how you decorated and maintained your house meant a lot at the time which i feel like it still does today it's an, it's a signature of like you know i care about like where i live i have like a good job that kind of thing mm-hmm. and the style of shakespeare's house tells us that he was trying to embrace the traditions of his ancestors while also showing off the latest trends at the time which i think you still see that today too people were like oh like, this is an old house i want to like keep like the good bones but like i also want heated floors in my bathroom <laughs> kind <Right>. of thing <laughs> and remember shakespeare grew up in a relatively slightly like lower class do you guys remember when we were talking about social class and sumptuary laws when we were doing my last episode and I said that Shakespeare's dad I think he was like a hat maker or something and then he climbed the social classes and ended up being like mayor of Stratford I think yes now that you mention it I do remember yeah so like I feel like that's got to be part of the reason Shakespeare was like I want to like show off my new digs like look how nice it is but also kind of maintaining like the style that his ancestors had before him like don't forget where you came from homie Mm -hmm. that kind of thing He's just hats everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> so he, I feel like this house was the chance for him to show off his newfound high status. And he did this by focusing on the outward appearance of the house. He put in a long gallery, and he also maintained the house, house's medieval features. And archaeologists noticed that the appearance of Shakespeare's courtyard resembled the appearance of courtyard inn theaters in London. So they think that he was, like, hosting plays in his own courtyard, which I thought was kind of cool. Maybe he would do, like, test runs of his play or something like that that also found in Shakespeare's backyard were some pipes and inside those pipes was marijuana (laughs) so we're gonna get into this whole controversy that I think started like maybe five ten years ago I do remember articles like popping up like was Shakespeare a stoner Mm -hmm. it's like like, no wonder he got all those crazy (laughs) ideas it's like clickbait Literally, yeah. I was like, well, I don't know. Was he? Let's see. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So first we're going to talk a little bit about Shakespeare's remains, and then we're going to talk about did he smoke pot. So there's been a lot of controversy regarding Shakespeare's remains in his burial place. There have been non-invasive investigations of Shakespeare's remains to learn more about him. Because, you know, when you're studying physical remains, you can learn more about a person based on, like, isotopes, looking at the bones, how they died, et cetera, et cetera. So people, there's a lot of controversy surrounding, like, Shakespeare's actual burial place. So people wonder if the location of where Shakespeare was buried, which is in, (laughs) it's quite a name, Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire is where he was buried, in, like, a cathedral or an abbey, is the actual resting place of Shakespeare's remain. But they wonder what's actually inside the grave. Is it empty? Are there remains in there? Are there remains of a different person in there? There's suggestions of grave robbing or even a large family crypt that all his family members are inside of. 
So archaeologists used a ground-penetrating radar, which is shortened to GPR, to investigate the graves. And GPR showed us that there were multiple, in, multiple individual graves rather than a big family vault, which was common at the time. So it was normally like a big family vault, everyone went down there. But for Shakespeare's family plot, it was like individual graves, which was a little interesting, a little different. Not sure why. It was all the individual Shakespeare's. Yes, that's what you're oh. right, Katrina. It was like all the different people. You're so right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just feeding the conspiracy theory. Yeah. So beneath the tombstones were the individual graves and various members of Shakespeare's family were not buried in coffins, but rather simple shrouds. And they also concluded that Shakespeare's grave had been disturbed and that it was likely that his skull had been removed. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later and how accurate that actually is. The graves take up a large and expensive portion of the Holy Trinity Church where he's buried. And however, the grave site is fairly simple with no elite finery or trappings like is common for the time for an elite family. And this suggests that Shakespeare's family believed in simple re- um, regional religious practices. They weren't going for the flair. They just wanted to be buried peacefully, simple, plain, easy. So remember how I said that GPR showed us that it's likely Shakespeare's skull is not inside the grave. Mm -hmm. So there's theories that it was stolen from the grave. A grave robber robbed it in 1794. These accusations first came out in 1794, so a while ago from today, and they were made anonymously in a magazine called Argazi in 1879 and again in an 1884 pamphlet written by the same man who published the article in the Argazi magazine, who was later revealed to be Reverend C.J. Langston. What's going on with this? It's like, it's a weird story. So no one really took these claims seriously that his skull was gone, because it's like some reverend just published it in a pamphlet and a Mm -hmm. magazine. It's like, okay, Okay. (laughs) sure. Like he's he's tweeting out into the void. (laughs) Exactly, like, I'm telling you guys. So no one took these claims seriously until recently. I'm not sure why there was an uptick in interest about it, but there was. And the Holy Trinity Church, which you can still visit today, you can still visit Shakespeare's grave, didn't want to disturb Shakespeare's tomb for a few reasons. And we can talk a little bit about this because I feel like we've had some conversations about like disturbing bodies and like the ethical reasons behind it. But first of all, there was no actual evidence to support the claims that the skull was gone. And people also theorized that Shakespeare was... For some reason, people theorize that Shakespeare was buried standing up because his grave is a slightly different size from his family members. So people were like, well, maybe if he's like standing up, like you can't see his head. And that's why we don't think it's there. Whatever. But there was no proof for any of that either. So there was no like solid evidence to actually cause them to want to bury, like dig up his bones. So instead of doing the digging, they used the GPR to kind of scan it and see what was going on. And it showed that there was a blank slab over the head of Shakespeare's grave, like where his head should be, there was a blank slab. And archaeologists dubbed it as significant enough reason to suggest the skull might not be there. Now, I read two articles about why Shakespeare's skull is not seen in the GPR analysis. And one of them was really gung-ho, like, oh my god, his skull's not there, someone stole it, this is crazy. And the other one was a bit more like, let's look at this more reasonably and see what could be going on before jumping to crazy conclusions about grave robbers at the time. So some archaeologists believe this slab could also be a slab with a special engraving on it that Shakespeare wanted to be buried with, which it seemed like it was common at the time. Like, you know, someone might be buried with, like, 
I don't know, like a stuffed animal or something like or something like that, like because they, mm-hmm. they want to have it like in the afterlife with him. So they thought like maybe he wanted to be buried with like a slab that had a saying on it, and the slab is just simply blocking his skull from being read by the GPR. Sounds pretty reasonable to yeah. me. Others suggest that the Reverend's article claiming that the skull was missing was purely a piece of fictional work that took on a life of its own over a century later. And it's important to note that the Argosy magazine itself was a publication of short stories for fictional entertainment purposes, right? So it's like, wait, when you get fed more information... It's just like a funny thing to write about. Exactly. Like a weird topic, but okay. Sure. But other archaeologists suggest that the disturbance at the head of the grave suggests that the skull theft did happen, and they believe that this slab, which they describe as a box-like support, was put there to replace the skull and maintain the shape of the grave. So, like, you wouldn't, it wouldn't, like, cave in and you wouldn't notice that the skull is missing. So, ultimately, we really won't know if Shakespeare's skull was stolen unless we exhume his body. But is it worth it to exhume his body? Is it ethical to exhume his body? And aside from the fact that the idea of exhuming bodies from their resting place is already a bit of a moral dilemma, it's, I think, important to note that post-Reformation, so remember, this is why I did the other episode, remember how the Church of England broke from the Catholic Church? Mm -hmm. So their beliefs in this, like, Protestant community now, um, such as Shakespeare, they had a very specific fear of being disturbed after being buried. They really didn't want that to happen, like, it, which a lot of religions and beliefs I feel like feel the same way like they don't want to be disturbed after they're put to rest and it was common for people to grave rob back in the day so that was a really big fear that people had that they were going to be buried put to rest and then disturbed and that could like affect you know like the afterlife so I just wanted to know if you guys had like any opinions on that like is it worth it to dig up Shakespeare's skull not not even like for the skull but like to learn more about Shakespeare himself or like is this more like it's better to let dead men rest (laughs) like literally you know, I don't think we need to know mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. So, like, digging up a person's bones just to be like, oh, yeah, his skull's there. Or, oh, it's not. Like, mm-hmm. you're not learning anything yeah. from that. Like, it's not actually useful. It's just, like, your own, like, kind of morbid curiosity at that mm-hmm. point. And, like, when we think of Shakespeare, like, we're not thinking, like, I need to know everything about this person, like, in the context of where his skull is at it's like when you learn about Shakespeare you learn about the things he did in life not whether or not Mm -hmm. his skull is in his coffin (laughs) or in his gravesite right like he didn't necessarily die under particularly like suspicious circumstances and you know I feel like today the only ethical reason or moral reason to dig up anyone's remains or exhume a body would be for um, crime investigation Mm -hmm. and I think you know it depend case by case depends, but I think that is pretty fair. Yeah. Um, but with Shakespeare, it's, again, like you said, it's morbid curiosity. Like, do we really need to know where his skull is? Yeah. Like, I feel like if somebody did steal his skull, we would know for sure. Because think about all the different other skulls and bodies and things that were grave robbed we know about it because mm-hmm. it's disappeared and people have been like yep that's gone and you know somebody stole it and it's been grave robbed because mm-hmm. people like to claim that sort of thing even if you don't necessarily know who they are you know that it's it's gone so it's interesting that people have just come up with this story of Shakespeare's skull being gone yeah 
It's like it wouldn't be solving anything. Like even if you exactly. did find out, like like his it's skull, not there. It's like okay, what are you gonna do? Like, persecute someone who stole like, it in 1603? <laughs> like it's not even gonna make a difference, right? But yeah, I agree with you guys. Like better to just let it rest because like obviously when he passed away, you know he didn't want his body being buried up. We're gonna talk about more about that even later. But it's like it's not worth it at this point. I think you guys both said the term morbid curi- morbid curiosity. And, like, that's what it is. Like, you can theorize about it, sure. The GPR is kind of exciting to use. But, like, there's no reason to dig up the entire plot. Because then you're disturbing all of the people that are also just buried there peacefully who didn't want to be disturbed and weren't famous mm-hmm. for writing a bunch all of All the plays. other Shakespeare's. Then, exactly. Right. I think on, like, the kind of the flip side of that, like, that costs money to do. That's so true, too. Um, and it's, like, who's paying for that? And, mm-hmm. like, what could be, like, what could be using that money yeah. that actually, like, has some consequence to mm-hmm. it? The so taxpayer dollars yeah. zooming Shakespeare's <laughs> yeah. body. It's like, oh man. It's like it's not helpful. Like it's kind of like morally gray. So like why exactly. would you want to like put Expend. time and money yeah. towards that? So kind of in the same vein, because this becomes an issue with the whole did Shakespeare smoke pot conversation. It delves into it because the people that want to figure this out are like, we have to exhume the body to figure out if he did. So let's talk a little bit about that first. So in 2011, a South African anthropologist asked if he could exhume Shakespeare's body to test to see if the author used drugs to perhaps write his plays, poems, and sonnets. Studying Shakespeare's skeletal remains would tell us about his health and death, but you would actually need hair and fingernail fragments to see if he smoked pot. So first of all, you're not even going to be guaranteed to have hair or fingernail fragments down there. Especially if the skull is gone. It- it's so true. <laughs> so it's like you're trying to like exhume the body and you're not even guaranteed that what you're looking for is even going to be down there. Well, then you said that the scientist was trying to see if he used drugs while writing his like, plays, plays, but then you sonnets. wouldn't even know if that was used right. for the plays specifically. There's so many like things that are just up in the air with it that it's not even like, like worth there's it. no way to prove that. Exactly. So a little more background around on this anthropologist. His name is Francis Thackeray, and in 2001, he found evidence of marijuana residue on pipe fragments found in Shakespeare's garden. So weed was grown in England at the time, but it was normally used to make textiles and rope. And Shakespeare also mentioned, and this is like Francis Thackeray's biggest, like, that this and the pipes are his biggest things for like, Shakespeare smoked weed, I just kind of know it. He mentioned that in a poem that Shakespeare wrote, it, um, the poem said, quote, there was a noted weed in sonnet 67 or 76 that some some suggest could be a reference to marijuana. So it's the pipes with weed in his backyard and a noted weed in a sonnet. Thoughts on on this? Not enough evidence for me. Mm -hmm. Not enough to exhume an entire person's body. You said that these pipes were found in his backyard, but it's also like theorized that he might have hosted like events in his backyard yeah. so what's saying that it's even his especially it's if true. it wasn't like in his house it's just, so like, on true because the, the they interviewed a different anthropologist or archaeologist in this some um, article and that person was saying like who's to say there weren't some like teenagers across the street who like had to get rid of them and they like threw, like threw it yeah. in the backyard or something like they could be anybody's anyone's and also like people other people besides Shakespeare lived in that house after him while he was alive so it's just like it just seems like this person is just obsessed with Shakespeare and not actually like yeah 
Exactly. So whether or not Shakespeare smoked weed, that aside, it's definitive that he did not want his bones to be disturbed. So whether you're trying to figure out whether his skull is missing or whether, you know, he smoked a joint once and then wrote A Midsummer's Night Dream, (laughs) like either way, he didn't want his body exhumed. And there's kind of proof of this, actually, because on Shakespeare's grave slab, it reads, Blessed be the man that spares these stones... And cursed be the man who moves my bones. That's so straightforward. He was like, please don't, (laughs) you know? He was like, just leave me alone. So now people have interpreted this, obviously, that there's a curse that Shakespeare has placed on his own grave. And if you dig up his grave, you risk being cursed by Shakespeare. It's not that he was just really good with words. No. (laughs) (laughs) So... And then here's where th- I'm so tired of this Francis Thackeray anthropologist guy because listen to this because when they were talking to him about that they were like what about like the Shakespeare curse and he was like it's going to be fine and here's why he said there was a loophole he said he's going to escape the curse by saying that if he's given permission to open the grave by the church that Shakespeare's buried in he won't move the bones he's just going to move the hair and the fingernails because that's what you need to find okay So the angle here was that we are fully accepting that there is a real curse on his grave. (laughs) Yeah. And that this scientist has thought of a loophole Mm -hmm. for a curse on Shakespeare's grave. Yeah. He also mentioned, I guess you could look at the, I'm looking at my notes, you could like look at the teeth too to find like residue of that or like, because I know use the teeth to like see what they ate and stuff too, right? So I think maybe you could like use that for like marijuana use possibly. But he's saying, like, well, I've just been moving the teeth, the hair, and the nails. So, like, I'm not disturbing the actual bones themselves. So I'm going to be fine. There, I feel like there's just so much going on here. Even if this was said in a joking manner, like, it's not funny. No, it's like you're still talking about, like, a human being. And, like, just based on what you've told us, it's like the research that he would do kind of wouldn't even matter anyway. No, exactly. Um, we wouldn't be learning anything from it. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I made a note that says, like, that's interesting talk coming from someone who's a professional anthropologist. It seems wildly unprofessional and disrespectful at the same time. So then his plan after that was after opening the grave was using laser surface scanning um, to digitally scan the skeletons of Shakespeare, his wife, and their daughter to get, like, more analysis on their bones and stuff like that. But, like, ultimately, they another anthropologist they interviewed for this, they said... That a lot of anthropologists are skeptical and say that this investigation is just ultimately not worth it, whether it be for the skull or the marijuana. And they argue that opening the tombs of specific individuals doesn't even contribute to any new knowledge that we know about a certain era, which you kind of just touched on, Emily. It's like, it's not, you're not learning anything new about the person. Katrina, like you were saying, like the only like reason that you can think of that would validate like opening up a grave was to see if there was like foul play involved in their death or something like that and like that's just not the case for any of this so it's you know it just seems like even if like a scrap of new information was learned it wouldn't even be a full paragraph in a book exactly right it's not scholarly research these are fun facts like yeah knowing whether or not shakespeare smoked weed is is a fun fact it's not anything that's gonna you know change the course of history Mm -hmm. like is it fun to talk about sure we don't need to dig up his entire grave we don't need to know for sure no there are some things that you just have to let be and leave to speculation and i just think that it's probably not the most appropriate for an anthropologist to be 
looking into things like that mm-hmm. that are just sort of need to be let let go it's true like some things are just meant to be mysteries yeah mm-hmm. and then this anthropologist was saying too it's like well we've already like studied the remains of people from this time so we know about like you know what they ate where they live kind of thing so digging up shakespeare specifically is not going to add anything new to any of that knowledge right and that's it so that's all i got for you guys today a little all over the place but I thought both topics were interesting. I'd like to think you learned a little bit more about Tudor England, specifically through the study of archaeology, and learned more about the people of Tudor England and what it actually looked like versus what we're taught. I do really like that you focused more on, like, the common person's day-to-day life, because you don't hear about that Mm -hmm. very often. And even in history books, it's always, like, the highlights. Mm -hmm. But it is really interesting to, like, learn about how people actually live, like, day-to-day. And I feel like that's what anthropology is for. Because I feel like people are like, oh, I love history. But a lot of times history focuses on, like, the big power plays. And then anthropology is more focused on, like, what do they do in an average day? What did a Saturday look like for someone in this time period kind of thing? So, yeah. That's all I got for you. And that's my last episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Tune in next week or two weeks from now for Emily's episode, her last one. For a full list of my sources, go to the link tree in our Instagram. We would like to give a special thanks to Professor Julia Giblin and Sarah Reedy for editing and supporting this episode. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Rainette Chefu, our producer and editor, and David DeRoche and the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time.